I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On a scale of killers from one to ten, do you think you're one of the best of all time? I read myself as fucking uh, number one. So that's pretty damn good, isn't it? That's pretty good, yeah. In Seattle this morning, police are hunting a mass murderer believed to have killed as many as 21 prostitutes in the last 22 months. David Burrington reports. Been called the Green River Killer ever since the first bodies, five of them, were pulled from this river. Since then, seven more bodies have been discovered nearby, all those of young prostitutes, according to police. And the number of missing increases steadily. Two were added to the list this week. All the victims worked this strip near the Seattle airport, crammed with hotels, motels, and strip joints. Angry residents are demanding police do more to stop the killings. I don't know, I'm just, I guess I'm just lucky that I never came across that certain freak. Welcome back to another I Could Murder a Podcast, episode number two of series eight, and I'm joined once again by the chameleon, the man of mystery, mm. the man who washes his body in his garden, Ben Carter, uh, how you doing? Some people might believe that last part. Yeah. Um, but I'm fine with that. I'm doing very well, thank you. It's great to be back with another episode, uh, and we hope everyone enjoyed uh, the series eight opener, um, which was uh, yeah, a highly upsetting case, and we're, we're back with more of the same this week, so... We hope uh, everyone's ready for this one, but doing very well. Bit of a theme with true crime, isn't there? Yeah, there's no light ones, really. Mm. Um, But, you know, if anyone is aware of any light ones, please do let us know, because we'll be more than happy to take a little look. Uh, But producer Dan, how are you doing? Welcome back. Hello, boys. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling healthy. Uh, My hay fever's gone. Ooh. Uh, I'm on a new drug, so if anybody suffers from hay fever and wants it, just um, hit me up. I think my wife may need that drug. So we'll talk drugs later. I could supply your wife with some drugs then. Well, that is, there you go. That sounds like a true crime case within itself. But yes, we're back once again with a huge case. And just a quick reminder, we are doing 18 episodes this season. So we've already done one. We've got 16 left after this one. We're doing 50% more content than usual. As a big thank you for all your support. And um, yes, we are very excited to bring you these cases. And this case, as Tom said, a very, very big case, as are the remaining 16 cases coming your way. Um, just a reminder that if you do uh, enjoy our content, if you can't wait for the uh, for the next episode, then we have got a website where we've got a ton of Minnesotes available in video and audio format. And we also do requests over there. We do monthly live streams. It's a lot of fun. It's turning quickly into a cult, though. I think uh, we're going to hear a little bit more about that at the end of the episode. It's, it's thriving. 
and uh, we're going to start to exercise our rights as cult leaders and maybe get a little bit silly with it all. Yes, yeah, what, what Ben said. And also, exciting announcement that we uh, are now offering for The Prestige. We're going to offer early access to the episode, so they'll be released on a Friday rather than a Monday, ad-free, in your ears. So why not sign up to be a Prestige member and get early access? So this week, guys, the case of Gary Ridgway, also known as the Green River Killer, the River Man, uh, famously coined by Ted Bundy. I really, that, that unnerved me, the River Man. The The Green River Strangler, slightly tweaked, The Highway 99 Murders, and Call Me Fred, uh, which we'll we'll get into that one. Uh, But yeah, big, big case. It's one that we know a lot of people have been waiting to hear, so we're going to jump into it. But Gary Ridgway has been described as one of the most atrocious serial killers of all time, and was for a time America's deadliest convicted serial killer. He is the second most prolific serial killer in the United States, with 49 proven victims behind Samuel Little with 61 proven victims. Both of them are suspected of more than 90 murders each, which is, I thought, quite a staggering stat. Ridgway himself would later go out of his way to attempt to prove that he had killed at least 80 people, saying, I want to prove them wrong. I want to prove there's 80 bodies out there, or 85 or whatever. It's all about the victims. It's not about me. Which I found really difficult to grasp that quote, because although he's claiming he's helping the families kind of get closure on what happened to their loved ones, it's all about him. It's all all about him. As soon as Samuel Little came along, he was like, his nose was out of joint and he wanted to be back on the top of the pile. But Definitely, yeah. I mean, even in the interviews, and we'll go on to it, like the way he's talking about things, wanting to get the record, wanting to be the number one killer. And the way he talks about the victims is very like disrespectful. It's, it's 100% not about, not about them. Completely. And another quote that I found really difficult to kind of get to grips with uh, was, again, from Ridgeway. I'm not a serial rapist. I'm a serial killer. I was going to say, Ben, uh, if... The name the Green River Killer, I can imagine Swampy just witnessing yep. all of this. I could too, yeah. It's the Basking kind of, in the yeah. sun. Yeah. No, no, more like you're just... In not involved. Of, not involved, no, but you're not basking in the sun. You're kind of just in the kind of like muddy little undergrowth. Yeah. yeah. Maybe a frog next to you. Does, uh, does Swampy have a noise? I don't know if we have a... <laughs> Hello. Put me down. Kill me. <laughs> Put me down. <laughs> Swampy, for context of uh, first-time listeners, because this would we don't want to put you off already, but Swampy is a nickname given to me after a shirt that I opted to wear in an episode that was very particularly Swampy, and therefore we formed the uh, criminal uh, detective pairing Scully and Swampy. Uh, Tom had a Skull shirt on, and I, I was left with the Swampy shirt. Yeah, and there's a questionable little bump on, on the Swampy drawing, which has been a lot of fascination and talk about that within, yes. within the cult. But yes, we'll move on, as we always do, into the early life of, of Gary Ridgway and see if there's any kind of red flags that, uh, you know, it would hint to what he'd go on to become. This is a very interesting one, because even when he's been interviewed, he, he just doesn't seem capable. Yes, when you see him being spoken to it's, it's a very peculiar one but well there's lots of similarities in, in terms of his childhood to a lot of other cases we've covered but yes we're going to go into it the early life of gary ridgeway gary leon ridgeway was born on february 18th 1949 in salt lake city utah we've had this before is it utah or utah utah utah, utah. Got it. no one's ever said utah got it right in one then no one's ever said utah got it right in one then didn't i yeah, it's a question. he was it's a bit weird. <laughs> 
He was the middle child of three boys born to Mary Rita Steinman and Thomas Newton Ridgway. The family lived in a small home in the town of SeaTac, Washington State, where Gary and his brothers would be raised. The family generally kept themselves to themselves, with both of Gary's parents having a very small social circle. And this is the thing, although the, the, the parents didn't have a great deal of friends, the whole neighbourhood were very aware of them. Gary's family faced financial difficulties for most of his young life. Their modest family house was in the McMicken Heights neighbourhood of SeaTac, which was very well known at the time for its high crime rate and poverty. The neighbourhood was very much transient, with a lot of truckers and commuters using the area for overnight stays. There was also a prevalence of sex work, drug trafficking and other criminal activities in surrounding towns and cities. Gary had a very turbulent childhood to say the least, and there are classic hallmarks of serial killers scattered throughout that could have contributed to his later criminal behaviour. There are lots of early life similarities you will notice that could easily be compared to Jeffrey Dahmer, Peter Sutcliffe, Ed Kemper and John Wayne Gacy, and many other cases we have covered, the list goes on. Gary had very strange relationships with each of his parents in very different ways. Gary's father Thomas, who is said to have been away from the family for extended periods of time due to work, worked as a metro bus driver for the WSDOT Pacific Highway South. And um, that's one thing we've noticed in other cases lots before, an, an absent father tends to be quite a running thing. I mean, obviously that's not enough to turn someone into that way, but a clear male role model has often had quite an effect on people. Definitely. Or left them in their mother's care, which tends to be not the best care. Yeah, this, this case in particular, always we talk about the old serial killer classic red flag bingo yeah as we go on clean house is that what you say clean house full, full house. house maybe he's looking around yours and you're like clean house yeah. full house uh, is of course what i meant to say yeah. uh with with gary ridgeway full house ringo um <clears throat> His route often took him to and from multiple states, including Utah, Idaho, Oregon, and Washington, and he would regularly travel along Highway 99, also known as the Golden State Highway, a stretch of road that ran from Southern California near the Mexican border all the way up to Blaine, Washington, next to the Canadian border. He would be absent from much of his son's childhood as a result of his work. Yeah, and I think as we go into it a bit more, there's a mixture of, yes, he was away on long-distance drives for work, but the home life... I feel like he wanted to get as far away from his wife as possible at the same time, which obviously had a profound impact on the children. But we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. It's, uh, Didn't have it's a clean house, Ben. Definitely not. No, there, it was things were scattered amongst the place. Just covered in red flags. Yeah, absolutely. During a particular stretch of the journey, Thomas would travel through King County, an area that the now infamous Green River would flow through, and an area that was very well known for the volume of sex workers that operated there. But they're very loud. The volume, yes. Could have been. I mean... You want to pay for it? Huh? That's fairly loud. So yeah, he travelled through, uh, through King County, was very aware of the, uh, the uh, prevalence of sex workers that were in the area. When he did return to the family home, Thomas would preach to his three boys about the dangers of sex workers, referring to them as, quote, Filthy whores, who you should stay well clear of because they will danger you and they will corrupt you. He would relay these stories to his sons on a weekly basis throughout much of their young lives. Gary's mother Mary was a homemaker who worked as a part-time sales clerk, so she worked in a men's fashion store, and she very much ruled the family home with an iron fist. Many neighbours and family friends have described Mary as a very domineering, controlling and heavily opinionated woman, stating that she and Thomas would regularly get into very heated verbal arguments that occasionally became physical in front of their three children. 
Mary would be physically and mentally abusive of her husband as well as her three boys, often belittling and berating them, leading to the boy's father spending more and more time away from home at work. I've just noticed a big correlation between a lot of these cases. It's a bit of a weird thing as well. How many of the mothers just tend to have an iron fist? So many. Do you know what I mean? That often leads. If you so, if you see a woman with an iron fist, and you're thinking about maybe having a kid with them, be careful because yeah, think twice. Kid, yeah, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Ben? Um, you could rule the house, I suppose, with a copper wrist fist. Just trying to think Pardon? of something different. Yeah, I ruled the house with an iron fist. Copper wrist. Yeah, you never hear like ruled the ruled the roost, guarded the nest um, with a barbed wire fence. I can imagine you'd be ruled the house with a damp palm. Ruled the house with a damp palm. Yeah, that's me, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know what it means. But it was clean. It was clean house. Mm, yeah. House. Not the palm. Filthy. Um, so, yeah, she would... Yeah, very interesting woman, as we'll, we'll go on to discuss. Mary was very much the head of the household, uh, as we mentioned, Iron Fist, and she would look to punish her three boys with particular ferociousness towards Gary. Uh, and with Gary, in, I don't know why the middle child she's gone for, but... With him, she did. It's going to get really weird. Um, But she would look to Gary for any of the slightest infractions and immediately punish the boy. Neighbours surrounding the Ridgeway family property were treated to evening soundtracks of screaming and crying. Mary was unusually cruel to Gary in particular, often ridiculing and embarrassing him. This would happen whether his father was present or not. Mary would dominate the entire family. On one particular occasion, this is again an interesting sign of their relationship, she even struck Thomas over the head with a dinner plate in front of their children, breaking the plate. Didn't just break it, it smashed to pieces. It it scattered amongst the the house. uh, Sure. Red flags. But Thomas, you might expect he reacted quite violently to this. He did not react whatsoever. Um, So either he was afraid of Mary or he just was a non-conflictual type of guy. Uh, but Mary was very much hyper-controlling and would outlaw, as well as all the other things we've talked about, she would outlaw snacks and television in the household. So those fists are very irony. Gary's relationship with his mother, as we were going to discuss, played a huge role in his formative years and his actions later in life. Gary would later say that he felt rejected by his mother and that he should not have had to witness his parents fighting so often, which could have contributed to the feelings of resentment and anger he would often harbour. Gary's brothers, Thomas and Gregory Ridgway, had a very ordinary childhood, education and social life. The pair, especially Gregory, the eldest brother, were very tall and athletic and intelligent. Gary, however, in addition to the volatile environment at home, encountered many different additional issues as a youngster. At school, he struggled to fit in or make friends, and he also struggled quite a lot academically. He was dyslexic, and there was not a great deal of support available to him at the time which meant that, due to poor grades, he was held back and made to repeat the same school year twice whilst attending high school. When tested, he was found to have an IQ of 82. Some have speculated that he had a number of different intellectual disabilities. When asked if he was a happy or angry child, Gary said, I was an angry kid having a hard time at school. Gary begins to cry. My mum and dad talked about putting me in a retail school. I didn't want to go. Gary was described as a very forgettable person by his peers, which I think kind of works to his advantage later on in life definitely as you probably heard in our episode introduction when interviewed later in life and asked how on a scale of killers from one to ten do you think you're one of the best of all time which is kind of an oddly phrased question to which gary said i rate myself as probably number one gary was described as a shy and introverted child who had very few friends don't look at me tom he often spent his time alone in his room engaging in activities such as collecting and studying animal remains 
he slowly developed a morbid fascination with death and his ability to detach from the suffering of living creatures could be seen as early signs of a highly disturbed personality. Dahmer. Very, yeah, very dumb. You get a little bit of everything in this guy. Um, a little bit of Dharma in Gary Ridgway. A little bit of Sutcliffe with his mum. A little bit of Kemper up. Mm-hmm. I do like that track. It's one of my favourites. <laughs> really favourites? Yeah. It's one of the first sing. It's a really bizarre first two single CDs I bought. Well, Limp Biscuits Rolling and Lou Baker's Mamba Number no. 5. Mine was OPM. Uh, Heaven is a half pipe. Good pick. And I think pick. Shaggy was around there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mine was Adam's song. Okay, cool boy. Tom mentioned uh, Gary's brothers, both quite tall and athletic. Well, Gary was actually quite small for his age and remained kind of small for his age as his age increased, uh, standing at only five foot six for most of his teenage years. This resulted in some mild bullying from his brothers and other children at the school. Gary had also picked up a reputation in town for being an animal abuser. He and his brothers would regularly shoot wild birds with BB guns, but Gary took it a step further and began shooting neighbourhood cats and dogs. And this, this surprised me. He would occasionally even aim his BB gun at dogs that people were out walking, uh, which resulted in the owners of the dogs taking Gary and his gun to his parents to complain. And although Gary would be physically reprimanded by both his mother and father, his BB gun was never taken away from him. And there is a heavily mentioned rumour online that Gary also shut a cat in a chest freezer when he was 12 years old, locking the cat in there until it died. I had that on the doco. As well. Horrible. Yeah, all of these, uh, I mean, that's very Dwight Schrute, the last, the last detail. But um, yes. yeah, the rest of it, yeah, it's, again, it takes a lot of, a lot of boxes of previous cases we've heard. And the shooting of animals is similar to Martin Bryant's the Port Arthur Massacre as well. So yeah, it's reading off the greatest hits, isn't it, really? A lot of links. Yeah. Smelt like Africa. I was about to say, if you saw a links, you probably would have shot it. But um, Oh, that's still good. Yeah, it ties good. in with yeah. my links Africa as well. On top of his struggles at school and abuse of animals, Gary had a seemingly relentless bedwetting problem, which lasted until he was 13. Whenever he had an issue, his mother would berate him before insisting on washing his genitals for him after each episode often in freezing cold baths. She would verbally abuse her young son whilst washing his genitals for extended periods of time. On many of these occasions, she was barely clothed herself. This would go on to sexually arouse Gary, whilst also filling him with hatred towards his mother, and therefore women. Yeah, it's it's this again. I'm not going to keep saying this, we're not going to keep doing this, but Chikatilo, he was one to, would go on to have a bedwetting problem, and his mother, I think she whipped his um, penis with a cane yes. uh, whilst hanging out with dirty sheets for everyone to see. There seems to be a, a different correlation there. Quite a lot of Ed Kemper in there as well, isn't it, with the mother, mother-son relationship. Mm. Um, but yeah, this this there's lots of, uh, uh, if you listen to other podcasts, if you watch other uh, documentaries, there's a lot of kind of speculation about the mother kind of regularly uh, kind of strutting around the house in very few items of clothing. Um, and the items would become more and more sparse every time she took her son into the bathroom, which is just... Ugh. Grim. And though many have speculated that this has developed a severe Oedipus complex for Gary, others have suggested that his mother wanted to intentionally arouse her son, who she seemed to target specifically. According to Gary, she would tell him stories about her fitting men with new clothes in a role as a sales clerk at a men's fashion outlet, and how the gentleman would become aroused when she fitted them. Yeah, this is weird. She also told him about how their genital area smelt. Like what? Which, I don't I don't think she gave specific examples, but she would talk about, you know, you put me on the spot here. I just heard he that this is what you know well yeah, well she 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 brought it up. 
really. Yeah. But um, she would what say, did... you know, this gentleman smelled like this, this gentleman smelled like that, you know, this area smelled like this, this area smelled like that. Scratch, scratch the back, get a whiff. Yeah, yeah. Give it a big old sniff. Mm. Um, yeah, park chops last night. I don't know what she talks like that. <clears throat> yeah. But yeah, interesting. So when she was fitting these clothes onto these men, um, they have, particularly, as Ben said, apparently, a very smelly cocks. This left Gary feeling incredibly conflicted and incredibly confused in the peak of his developmental years. At the same time, though his brothers were not sexually abused in the same way that he was, they still told other children at school about Gary's bedwetting issues, which resulted in even more bullying. So yeah, being known as the kid that shoots dogs and pisses the bed, it's not... Yeah. You're gonna get you're gonna get a hammering. This further exacerbated his situation and feelings of isolation and inadequacy. Yeah, I mean he's not having a great time at the moment, and um, yeah, his brothers. I don't think they necessarily saw what his mother was doing to Gary behind the closed door of the bathroom, but they certainly knew about the bed wetting. Uh, and I thought, not necessarily an interesting f- uh, fact, but an interesting note: bed wetting occurs in almost sixty percent of serial killers on average. Ah, in fact, let's hit it. Play the jingle. Ben Carter's interesting fact. What? But you, you said it's just an interesting note. I changed, my mind after, oh, okay. well, I changed my mind whilst I was writing. Ben Carter's interesting fact. <laughs> this, this ticks a box. Okay. <laughs> ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. So, so, welcome back. Welcome back. We're back in our stride now. And obviously with the emergence of uh, Tommy's trivia, which went down really well from week one, um, the team at BC's IFs have had to, you know, we've been keen on uh, raising our fact game even higher, taking us to another level, uh, Jay-Z. Um, bedwetting. What's that all about? You tell me. I'm going to. Yeah. <laughs> so why do children wet the bed? Um, first question on my mind. First question on our listeners' minds. Uh, Well, there's lots of different reasons, and it can't be narrowed down to just one. Some of the causes of bedwetting include the following. uh, Genetic factors. So apparently if your your dad pisses the bed, there's a good chance you're going to piss the bed as well. It runs in the family. Um, It flows in the family. (laughs) Also, if you have uh, a general difficulty waking up from sleep, or if you're slower than normal development of the central nervous system, this reduces the child's ability to stop the bladder from emptying at night. As well as this, stress can be a major factor. So if they're having stress at home or stress at school, which again, Gary, well, he was having stress everywhere, wasn't he? Um, going through big changes like moving or the emergence of a new sibling and other stressors. Bedwetting may also be caused by an underlying health condition such as diabetes or constipation. Um, which I didn't, when I saw constipation, I thought, okay. We found an exit. <laughs> So bedwetting itself is uh, not considered abnormal until after the age of five. So don't panic, uh, any listeners below the age of five. That being said, there isn't a specific age when you should become overly concerned about the issue. The the general rule of thumb for any bedwetters out there is that you should seek treatment when your child starts to worry about wetting the bed or you start to worry about the issue. For the statisticians out there, bedwetting, when is it most common? One in two, up to three and a half years old. One in five up to five-year-olds, one in 20 up to eight years old, and one in 50 up to 15 years old. And for the serial killers out there, at least 58% of all recorded serial killers in the United States have confirmed that they wet the bed. And then I thought, well, how many of them have lied about that and said they don't, but they did? Uh, Many people believe that that figure should be much closer to 70%. And then, um, you know, here at BC's IFs, Ben Carter's Interesting Facts, we always want to know what's the biggest or what's the longest or what's the record. What's the most piss? 
That was really hard to find with uh, regards to bedwetting. All I could really find was a bedwetting recording chart, um, which basically you log when it happens, what happened, what you ate, when you ate it. So I thought that was, you know, kind of disappointing. But at the same time, if anyone keep is out in, there... Keep it in, though. Keep it yeah, in. Keep it in. Yeah, 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 keep it in. Because um, if there are any people... I've made, like, a little jingle for you as well. If there are any people, you know, experiencing issues of bedwetting or have family members going through that, because it's natural. You know, one in five, that's high, isn't it, for up to five years old. But it's fine. Don't overthink it. Here's the jingle. Download a chart from the NHS today and get login. Your bed sogging. Um... And back to the episode. Uh, I mean, it feels like you're trying to justify why you pissed the bed. But anyway, so as Gary grew older, his feeling towards his mother became more conflicted. He resented her for physically abusing him and being verbally abusive, but he seemed to enjoy the sexual abuse at her hands. One moment, he would harbour fantasies of killing his own mother. The next minute, he would develop heightened sexual desires towards his own mother, sometimes wishing to do both. This, combined with the killing and dismembering of small animals, resulted in Gary slowly escalating his behaviours and desires even further. A quote from Gary regarding his feelings towards his mother when he was just 14 years old. I thought about killing her. I thought about hurting her. I wanted her to shut up and leave me alone. I thought about doing it with my hands or a knife. I didn't have guns or anything, so it had to be the hands or a knife. So despite all the chaos in his personal life and his struggles with his studies, for the most part, Gary managed to string together a fairly positive social life. Fellow students at Thai High School described him as someone who dealt with some family dysfunctions, but was otherwise an ordinary boy. Like most other boys his age, was interested in football, cars and girls. Alan Sample, who attended school with Gary's brother Greg, told later interviewers that Gary never had any trouble getting a girlfriend or getting a date, and he also managed to make the freshman football team. And by the sound of things, he wasn't too fresh in the sheets. Anyway, Ben, over to you. When Gary turned 16, the first signs of his emerging double lives started to appear. Despite having a small circle of friends and his family life finally showing signs of stability, his heightened desires were not quenched. When walking home from school, he observed a six-year-old boy who was unaccompanied that he hadn't seen before in his neighbourhood, so he approached him. After somehow convincing the boy to go in the woods with him, which that always makes me feel uncomfortable, going into the woods with someone. So why'd you do it? <laughs> Fucking hell. After convincing the boy somehow to go into the woods with him, he then struck the boy twice in the chest with a small hunting knife, with one stab to the boy's ribs and one stab to the boy's liver. As Gary retreated and the boy lay on the floor in agony, according to the victims and Gary's own statement, he said, quote, I always wondered what it would be like to kill someone. Fortunately, the boy survived, though he had quite a serious injury to his liver. Astonishingly, Gary was never identified or charged with this attack. So essentially getting away with attempted murder there. At the, mm. I think Gary was 16 when he did this, so that's horrific. And I didn't know about that about this case at all, but yeah, he's essentially tried to murder a kid as a kid. On top of getting away with attempted murder scot-free, which is a trend that would follow him for much of his later life, during his late adolescence, Gary developed an interest in voyeurism and began spying on his neighbours, particularly neighbours that were young girls. He would often peer through windows, secretly observing their private lives. This behaviour hints at his deep-seated issues with power, control and the objectification of women. And all of these issues link directly to his relationship with his mother. Despite all of these disturbing tendencies, Gary managed to graduate from T High School in 1969, aged 20, whilst many of his close friends had graduated two years before him. So as Tom mentioned, he got held back twice. Upon leaving high school, Gary got married to his first wife, 19-year-old Claudia Craig. 
And despite his friends and family thinking that Gary was now set for life with his new partner and that their relationship uh, was a strong one, unfortunately, it couldn't get off to a worse start. Their relationship was immediately tumultuous with numerous instances of infidelity on Gary's part. Although it has also been mentioned as soon as she found out about his infidelity that she also started cheating. So he had uh, numerous affairs and began to visit sex workers, even when living quite close to his family home. So he still had that fear of his mother in the back of his mind, demonstrating his deep lying issues with sexual compulsion, as well as his hatred and a lack of empathy towards women. Their marriage unraveled within the first year, with the couple divorcing in 1970. And they both kind of cited that both Claudia and Gary uh, divorced due to their unfaithfulness. Uh, his wife began seeing other people upon discovering that he had been seeing sex workers. It was Ridgeway or the highway, and she took the highway. After completing his education, he joined the US Navy, where he would serve for several years. Uh, and this uh, service included working on board a supply ship in Vietnam. During his time in the military, he tended to keep himself to himself, much like his family in their neighbourhood, and he learnt a lot about combat and various defensive holds, including chokeholds and restraints. At the same time, whilst finally away from his mother's grasp, he began to frequent sex workers, engaging in risky, unprotected sexual behaviour and exposing himself numerous times to sexually transmitted infections, contracting gonorrhea on at least two occasions. And although he was furious upon the discovery of this, it did not stop him from continuing to see sex workers. Um, and actually at this time, he kind of joined the army at the same time that he got married uh, uh, to uh, Claudia Craig, and he would still he would sleep with sex workers whilst away with the navy contract STIs and then come back and still sleep with his wife. So absolutely horrific. So it's not being clever. Just put something on the end of it, eh, Ben? Absolutely. That's, That's sound advice. advice. It doesn't make you cooler not doing that. No. Other members of the navy described Gary as quote friendly but strange. Mm. After Claudia and Gary had divorced, Gary looked to take up new employment. And after his experiences in the Navy, he became very interested and very passionate about becoming a police officer. But I couldn't find much about this. He was rejected after just his first application. So he didn't go in and do medicals, physicals or whatever. They just rejected him. So I don't know because he didn't have a criminal record at this point. Um, I don't know if they just thought he was a bit weird. Well, in interviews, he, he, he has a tendency of wording things in quite a peculiar fashion. I can imagine if he's filling out an application form, he might go around the houses a little bit mm -hmm. and, think, and think things are interesting when they're not as well. Either way, he was furious about the fact that he'd been rejected by the police, which again, some have speculated is why he had this kind of uh, very venomous relationship with the police later in life. As a result, he took up work as a vehicle painter, painting vans and cars for Kentworth Truck Factory in Bellingham, Washington. And again, he took to the role very well and kept himself to himself. He didn't form many friends at the factory, but he was a hard worker and a well-valued employee. Yeah, I heard it's sp spray paint worker, spray painting yeah. away. There must be a lot, a lot of tins to do old car, I bet. Probably, yeah, more so for a van. Oh, definitely, a, definitely. Yeah. In December of 1973, Gary married for the second time. So yeah, two marriages in three years. Yeah. yeah he's, he's on the scene, isn't he? This is before Bumble. Um, this time to Marsha Loreen Brown, whom he met at a local bar. Their marriage, exactly like his first, was also brief, filled with extramarital affairs, and ended for the same reason. Though the pair conceived a son, Matthew, together in 1975. From the moment he was born, Gary maintained a good relationship with his son, and he was granted weekly visitation rights after the divorce, ensuring that he attended every visit. 
Marsha would later claim that they divorced after eight years of marriage because Gary once placed her in a chokehold in front of their son. Yeah, I mean, not good, is it? Shortly after Marsha left him, he was arrested for trying to choke a sex worker near his local airport. But the charges were immediately dropped as the lady in question refused to provide additional detail to the police, which resulted in the police not taking the accusation seriously. Yeah, so at this point, he's twice attempted to murder someone and twice gotten away with it with very little repercussion and only really been looked at briefly for the second one. During his second marriage and possibly linked to the birth of his son, Gary became highly religious and spent a lot of time reading the Bible inside and outside of the church. Sometimes he would read aloud at work, much to the dismay of his colleagues. He would also occasionally visibly be moved to tears by the church sermons. Following this new passion, Gary would go door to door for his Pentecostal church, spreading the message of his Lord and Saviour. He would also insist that his wife, who had already fallen rapidly out of love with him, joined him on these outings. So yeah, if you're not passionate about your partner and maybe not as religiously passionate as he is, I can imagine that would be horrible going door to door and just sort of kicking the dust as he knocks. You know, hands in your pockets in the background, kicking the dust. The rubble, little stones in the Kicking floor. The, yeah, everywhere, spraying them. Kicking the dust. At the same time, in a rather sharp contrast to his new religious passions, he would often use his evenings and weekends to solicit sexual favours from sex workers and had a reputation amongst them for having an extremely high sex drive, demanding sex from the same workers and his two wives. So he'd been married twice by this point, but his wives kind of backed up these stories from the different sex workers he would encounter that he would want sex several times a day. I feel like I should just say sex a couple more times right now. So sex, 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 sex. He would also ask his two wives that he had had to this point and the women that he would visit to engage in sexual activities in public with him often in partially wooded areas or on publicly visible riverbanks, much to their dismay. Unfortunately, these locations would later become areas that Gary became all too familiar with. Gary, to his own son, to his two previous wives and to his colleagues, as well as his friends in the area and members of his church, would regularly start to complain about the volume of sex workers in their local area, so much like his dad, telling similar stories and preaching similar messages to that of his father. But at the same time, he would become a regular and notable client of many of these women, continuing his childhood feelings of confusion and conflict regarding his view on sexual relationships and women in general. Many have speculated that Gary used religion to try and stem his sexual desires, but that this had little effect. So much so that in April of 1982, he was arrested for a second time for soliciting an undercover police officer who was posing as a sex worker. For this uh, arrest, he didn't serve any time, but he was cautioned and ordered to pay a $400 fine. Gary got married for a third time in 1988 to Judith Lorraine Lynch, and it would be Gary's longest and most successful relationship by distance, lasting almost 14 years. The pair shared a very loving, intimate and loyal relationship that initially seemed to prevent Gary from seeking out sex workers. This would only stop Gary for a very brief period. However, as he would return to solicit sex workers once again after 18 months of marriage, Gary would even state in a later interview that he felt less of an urge to kill while we were together during this time. All of Gary's previous partners said Gary had incredibly strong sexual and sexually aggressive desires. He often requested them to have sex with him in public or in the woods and up to three times a day. These were some of the happiest times of Gary's life. Well, at least one of his lives, as another, much darker, much more sinister life had begun almost a decade prior. It is here that Gary remembered his father's story about Highway 99. It is here that Gary made the decision to, once again, escalate his disturbing behaviour. And it is here that we move to the timeline of Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. July 15th, 1982, two children are riding their bikes playing carefree and aimlessly when they find a floating body in the river. It was later discovered that the body belonged to Wendy Lee Caulfield. Before her murder, Wendy had been disobeying orders from her parents. She had attempted at the age of 12 to run away when she ran to a nearby truck shop and hoped to catch a lift so that she could be free of her parents' ruling. She was described by her mother as wild in a lot of ways, but I don't think it was a harmful kind of wild. The only one that it hurt was herself. So a little bit of background on Wendy. Um, her parents were gone to divorce with Wendy living with her mother. The two lived on a very low income. And by 1982, Wendy was working as a sex worker. The same year that she became a sex worker, she would go on to be murdered. Wendy was aged 16 when she was killed. Her body is found in the Green River, Seattle, and she was found naked. 12th of August 1982, the body of Deborah Bonner is found in the Green River. She was aged 23 at the time of her death. Deborah had last been seen on the 25th of July, almost three weeks before her body was discovered. Deborah had had a troubled life filled with alcohol and drugs, and when she met Robert L. Martin, things only got worse. Infatuated with Robert, who worked as a pimp, she agreed to work the streets for him. Sadly, this would lead to her death. On the 15th of August 1982, exactly one month after the first body was found, two more bodies are discovered in the Green River. One of the bodies had its arm waving as an effect of the currents of the water. The police fear that this starts to look like the work of a serial killer. The bodies belonged to Marcy Chapman and Cynthia Hines. Marcy was aged 31 at the time of her death and a mother to three children. She had previously been known to police, in particular Detective Faye Brooks as she was the victim of sexual abuse. Detective Faye Brooks had primarily worked in the sex crimes department, but was often called to work alongside homicide in major crimes. Cynthia Hines was just 17 years old at the time of her death. She disappeared on the 11th of August, 1982. She was often nicknamed Cookie by friends. Unfortunately, these bodies would not be the only discovery made on this day. Whilst investigating these crime scenes, Detective Dave Reicher stumbled across another body whilst walking down a path. 16-year-old Opal Mills was found with her socks still on her feet. She had only one shoe and her clothes had been tied around her neck. 
all the women had ligature marks consistent with strangulation. So yeah, this is even whilst investigating the scene where they found two bodies, they accidentally stumble upon another body. And uh, the numbers in this case are staggering, but it only gets more and more bleak. Cynthia and Opal were friends before their deaths and had painted apartments together. It is not believed that this link led to both of their deaths though. Opal's parents were in disbelief when it was reported that their daughter was a sex worker. Opal had plans to marry the year of her death. Friends also denied her involvement in this line of work. However, with a plethora of bodies being found in the Green River, it was clear to police something sinister was happening. They most likely had a serial killer on their hands and the killer became dubbed the Green River Killer. August 16th, 1982. With four bodies found within a month in the same area, King County Sheriff's Office decided to set up a task force dedicated to solving the murder of these women. The task force is led by Detective Dave Reichardt and would go on to comprise of a specialised team of 25 detectives, including Detective Faye Brooks. And we're not going to go into it in depth, but Detective Dave Reichardt has a very interesting story um, about how he became to be a detective as well. Immediately, the team began to look at the work of their killer and whether it poses any similarities to other serial killers such as Ted Bundy. The team contacted the FBI and were told that the serial killer may try and interfere with the case. They had DNA evidence of the killer as two of the victims had sperm found within them. Detective Faye Brooks is asked to go to the strip and warn the people working there about the murderous spree. So the strip was an area where sex workers were known to use as a place of work and is a highway that goes between Seattle and Tacoma along the Pacific Highway South. Fame warned the women and told them to be vigilant, but in her own words, they never thought that it would be them. Yeah, a lot of similarities with the Yorkshire Ripper there, Peter Sutcliffe. But I think a lot of these victims that Ridgeway would target were essentially vulnerable due to the fact that they had they were making ends meet they were trying to make a living and they had to keep working to keep the money coming in september of 1982 the police receive a call from a man who claims that someone he knows may be a good suspect the caller tips the police off about a man named dan smith who was known to frequent the strip dan smith is immediately brought in for questioning but it soon becomes clear that he is not the killer bearing in mind the fbi profile police turn to look at the caller who gave them the tip they find that the man is called Melvin Foster. He is a cab driver in his 40s, and although he lived near the state capital, he would drive his cab to the strip. Furthermore, there were warrants out for his arrest for some traffic violations, and he had previously been to prison for auto theft. Melvin was brought in for questioning and shown photographs of the murder victims. He denies knowing any of these women. Thinking that he is hiding something, the police use a scare tactic in the hopes that Melvin will give more information on the killer. Therefore, the police tell him that they are going to place him in jail for his traffic violations. After spending time in a cell, Melvin suddenly changes his story. Now, he states that he knows the victims as he had driven them in his cab. Due to the nature and the change in his story, police issued Melvin Foster a polygraph test. And during this test, Melvin was asked if he knew who the Green River Killer was. He said no. He was also asked if he was the Green River Killer. Again, he said no. Results showed that he failed the test. However, we must remember that the polygraph testing is not always accurate, as this case will prove. After failing a polygraph test, Melvin is placed under surveillance and is monitored all throughout the day. This was in the hopes that the suspected killer would slip up and the team would be able to collect viable evidence that he was the killer. October 1982. Wanting to make people aware of his surveillance, Melvin begins to call news reporters. He steadily maintained his innocence. He wanted to make people aware that, in his opinion, he was being harassed by the police. He even said during one interview that he was not scared, as fright is for the guilty. 
In reality, he loved the attention, another trait that the FBI highlighted in their profile. Yeah, so this this guy is really, in all the documentaries, he's a, a key feature in here because he's being associated with these horrible spree of murders, but at the same time, he's disassociating himself from them, but still wanting to be uh, kind of in the media limelight with regards to the murders. So he's mm. wanting the attention, but he's also at the same time attaching him to this case. It's, he's a really peculiar individual, I find. It was too expensive to keep surveilling the man that they had little concrete evidence on. In addition to this, each member of the task force were looking at around 20 suspects and focusing all their efforts on this one, and that could let their killer slip through the net. Also, during this time that the police were monitoring Melvin, more women were killed. Therefore, he could not be the killer. 1983. Throughout this year, there were many protests for women's charities surrounding the police competency within the case. They argue that because the majority of the women had been killed were sex workers, the case was not given the attention that it deserved immediately. The task force has denied that this was ever the case, and has also said that they held utmost respect for the victims, as they were still someone's friends and relatives. And that's quite reminiscent to the Robert Picton uh, case, isn't it? Where people were thinking that they weren't given enough attention to the victims, and well, it's, again, it's like um, it's like the Yorkshire Ripper as well. It's it's speculated that the police weren't as keen or putting as much resource in their time in there as much as they should have done 30th of april 1983 on this date gary ridgeway is suspected of being the green river killer for the very first time marie malva suddenly disappeared when eating at a restaurant with her boyfriend the week before noticing his girlfriend had disappeared suddenly marie's boyfriend gets into his vehicle and begins to search for marie he notices that she is in the pickup truck in front of him he follows the truck until it sadly disappears from his view Marie's boyfriend gave a description to police and after revisiting the area a few days later, he spots a matching pickup truck outside of the house of Gary Ridgway. Gary is interviewed by police but denies knowing Marie. 8th of May 1983, the body of Carol Ann Christensen is found. She was 21 at the time of her death. She had two daughters from a marriage to a man named Dennis. She was separated from her husband, and at the time of her death, she had just started working in the area the Green River Killer was known to operate, but as a waitress. Upon discovering her body, police were unsure whether to label Carol as a Green River Killer victim, as she was not thought to be a sex worker, but was last seen in the area he used to pray. It was clear at this point that the killer wanted to toy with the police. The killer had been on the loose for nearly a year, and at this point he had evaded capture. Carol's body had been dipped into the river and had a paper bag placed over her head. Upon her chest lay two fish and an opened wine bottle and some raw meat were found next to her body. There's been speculation that this display may have been a representation of the Last Supper, which is a. I just think it's him trying to confuse the, the situation by just putting all this random uh, iconography on there just to make it even more confusing. That's yeah, very loose if it's meant to be Last Supper. Yeah, I mean, from this moment that he's aware, he's kind of people are onto him, and and he might be under surveillance. He's yeah, he definitely mixes up his game slightly, but also. He is a highly religious individual. You can see mm. why that kind of comparison has been drawn. But it's a it's horrific. It's, uh, it's like something you might see in the movie Seven. Yeah. 13th of November, 1983. Although the killer is called the Green River Killer, his burial ground expanded as time went on. Whoa. Uh, yeah. And I think that's a that's an interesting thing because one of the images that comes up if you if you look at kind of or if you search Green River Killer map, it's pretty much a straight line alongside the river from where bodies have been recovered. But there are also a, a kind of numerous ones scattered alongside that where people have encountered him but managed to survive. But it's it's very much a straight line. But the span 
the the area itself is massive it's a very long stretch from uh, uh tacoma up to the kind of northern seattle um but yeah he's not differing he's not straying from that straight along the river but he, geographically it's a big span that they're now looking in mary meehan was discovered near the SeaTac airport and t golf course as a child, Mary would often bring home stray cats despite her family's allergies. She also suffered from a hearing difficulty, which meant that her education became strained at times as she found it difficult to concentrate. However, just before her death, Mary had hopes of receiving her GED. She was 19 at the time of her death and was around eight and a half months pregnant, which is yeah, absolutely horrific. And that, yeah, as we, as we mentioned, his, he's aware now. He's obviously been interviewed at one point. For, uh, uh, for being suspected as the Green River Killer. He's trying to mix his game up slightly, but uh, yeah, he's going to continue to try and mess with police here and he'll even begin to give them false tips. 1984. With the death toll rising, a public safety announcement labelled Someone Out There Knows Something is aired. A reward of $100,000 is offered in the hopes that it will cause a flood of tips to come in. Exactly this happens. People from all over the country with information that may potentially lead to the arrest of the killer begin to call. In addition to this, the Green River Killer Task Force is taken over by Captain Frank Anderson. Frank makes some significant changes to the task force. He decides to move the task force to a closer location to the strip. He also changes the way that the force handles suspects. Instead of looking at reasons to why they have done it, the team were asked to focus in on why a suspect couldn't have committed a crime. So instead of why they did it, why they couldn't have done it. Suspects were now placed into different categories, Group A, Group B or Group C. Group A suspects had close connection to the victims and fit the description of the killer in the FBI profile. Group B suspects had less known connection to the victims and Group C suspects had even less of a known connection to the victims. So yeah, Group C are kind of, I suppose, people of interest, but not, not a great deal of interest. Certainly not anywhere near as much interest as a Group B or A might be. Valentine's Day 1984. Another body is found in a new location. Delise Louise Plager's body is found near Exit 38 off I-90. She was 22 years old at the time of her death and had been missing for four and a half months before she was discovered. She also went by Missy. She and her twin brother had been in the adoption system since they were five and would eventually be adopted by separate families. She did reunite with her biological mother and her brother later in life. She was last seen on October 30th, 1983. On the 21st of March, 1984, on this day, another body is found at South 146th Street and 16th Avenue South. The bones were found in the fetal position and analysis shows that the victims were aged between the ages of 12 and 18. At the time, the body could not be identified and the findings were referred to as Bones 10. I see a 12 and 18, so he, he really didn't dis discriminate in terms of ages as well. No, I, I think he was approaching the the smaller and skinnier girls so the less physically imposing girls because he wasn't the biggest guy himself but to strangle someone as we'll get onto was his mo that still takes a great deal of strength and a great deal of power so i think he was particularly keen on the younger girls and the smaller girls uh, because he himself as as we mentioned is not not a very imposing guy yeah do you think if he crept up on dan he wasn't expecting it you could strangle him only if he wasn't expecting it. Yeah, he's not expecting it. He's watering the, the flowers in the garden. Does he do that? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. Oh. Could I grab the hose and use that on him? Or do I have to use my arms? You can do whatever you want, mate. If he didn't expect it and I could use the hose as well, I'd probably be able to finish him off. Oh. What about the strangling, though? 
I don't think you got the stamina, mate. Yeah, I might have. Ooh, this looks through. like we're gonna have to get this made happen. I don't think I'd ever want to hurt him. That's not the question. Yeah, but if you had to, if, if I had to, yeah, that's yeah. The, yeah. All right, if I had to, yeah, give me the hose pipe and. I think you get wheezy after five minutes. I don't need. I stick my leg into your back and. <laughs> Straight away, he 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 knew what he was going to do. Yeah, I'd hope if he was watering the plants, he'd be sort of bent down slightly as well, so I could get him to the ground quicker. I always thought it was bros before hose, but apparently it's prevent it's hose around bros next. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't want to though. I'd rather push him off the edge of something and let the rest. That's cowardly. Yeah, that is quite cowardly. Yeah, yeah, but that's instant, Dan. That's instant. A few seconds and potentially agonising death. (laughs) You could die from no, it'd be really high, hot air balloon. Yeah, yeah. Dad, look at that! Attack on the way down. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't want him to suffer, or me. Quite selfish that regard. Yeah, you are selfish. Yeah. Anyway, enough about you killing Dan. Go on. Yeah, sorry. Twenty second of March, nineteen eighty four. The following day, the police decided to use bloodhounds to search the area. Sadly, not long after bringing the hounds out, they found another body. The body of Cheryl Lee Wims. Bringing the hounds out. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking. Let the hounds out. 22nd of March. 22nd of March, 1984. The following day, the police decided to use bloodhounds in their efforts to search the area. Sadly, almost immediately after launching the search, a bloodhound would find another body. The body of Cheryl Lee Wims is found and she is identified using dental records. She disappeared in 1983 on her birthday. Cheryl's sister was also a sex worker who would later go on to disappear in a very similar way. Fearing more bodies were within the area, the bloodhound search did not stop, and unfortunately, more bodies were found. 31st of March 1984. Another body is found, but this time in a new location. The body of Debbie May Albanafi is found near Highway 410. She was 16 years old at the time of her death. Debbie had only been in the area for a few weeks before her disappearance. Because this is a point as well, at this moment in time, very reminiscent of the Yorkshire Ripper case. The women that were working in this location, and particularly on the strip, were continuously warned that there may be a serial killer on the loose. Um, they were, uh, well, the name Green River Killer was in all of the all of the newspapers, and they were very much aware that them working at that particular time put them in an extremely vulnerable position. Regardless of the growing threat to, to women that were working on the strip, they continued to try and make ends meet and they continued to put themselves in extremely dangerous positions. May of 1984. Originally calling the police to tell them that he may be able to help with the case, Gary is asked by detectives to take a polygraph test. So yeah, throughout this time, he's, well, there's a, there are, I mean, there's a website that has a full list of false tips that Ridgeway gave throughout the year of 1983. Um, he would continually call to say that he suspected this man, suspected that man had seen uh, a certain person at a certain site where a body was discovered. He was giving uh, locations. He was giving uh, fake license plates of trucks that matched descriptions of uh, that sex workers were giving of other women getting into the vehicles of. So he kept trying to act like this good Samaritan, trying to help them catch the killer, whereas all he was doing was kind of bringing more attention on himself. Well, do you think that's out of fear that he's going to get caught? So he's going to try and, or do you think it's cockiness and it's arrogance and he's, he's toying with them? I think it's a bit of both. I definitely think he held a lot of resentment for the fact that he was uh, not even given like a second interview. I don't even think he made it to the first one. So yeah. he had a lot of, a lot of grudges against the police. 
Um, but from the moment he was first interviewed, he seemed to mix things up. And he he's, uh, as we'll go on in the aftermath, he's very detailed in terms of remembering his victims' names, locations, what he did to them. Mm. But when it comes to then them trying to find him, I think he is trying to outsmart them. He, he's not the most intelligent guy, but I think he's still the power element is something that he really likes and i think at this point he's given them false tips to try and throw them off his scent i think his biggest strength is the fact he's such a kind of nothingy character like he is so forgettable like we mentioned earlier on he he doesn't strike you as a you know if he was your neighbor he'd probably say good morning and that's about it there wasn't much to him Mm -hmm. and he just didn't come across threatening he was a single father for a lot of the time so they thought it was harmless and uh, yeah his wife also kind of described him as church going big in the community in terms of religion go door to door so he yeah he, he had a very much harmless persona so so ridgeway basically called the police the local police to give them more quote-unquote tips that he felt would be useful in their search and i think at this point police are getting suspicious of him and they say look actually gary could you come down to the station and uh do a polygraph test for us so he does when he arrives at the station he is asked if he had killed any of the green river victims he denies this claim and he passes the polygraph test but bodies continue to be found and by the summer of this year 27 confirmed victims of the green river killer would be found just in a year. Early 1985, knowing that she may be holding information of the suspected Green River killer, a woman known as Rebecca decides to report an assault that she was a victim to in 1982. She told detectives that a man had flashed her his Kenworth... She told detectives that a man had flashed her his Kenworth trucking ID before she got into his truck and they drove to a secluded area. He asked for oral sex. During this time, he begins to choke her. Luckily, she managed to escape. Which is... uh, That's very rare in terms of any any of the people that managed to escape during this time so when Gary would later be questioned about this and about her escaping him um, he said he wasn't prepared at the time he had his, literally had his trousers around his ankles and he wasn't able to kind of get a full grip on her and, and choke her in the way he would with previous victims and also I guess with the trousers around the ankles he's not really going to be able to take chase and catch up with her Rebecca was shown pictures of six men that matched the description of the attacker that she gave she identified Gary Ridgway as the assailant Gary Ridgway worked for the Kenworth Trucking. When later questioned about the assault, he said they became angry after she had bit his penis during oral sex. Oral sex. <laughs> what did you say? That's so weird. Oral <laughs> sex. Uh, he said that he became angry after she had bit his penis during oral sex. I think, again, with this one, police kind of... The, well, Ridgway, I think, has gone from a C suspect to a B suspect now. I reckon he's mm. had that progression. But I also still feel that there's not a lot of sympathy for sex workers at the time. No. They're not taking their words seriously. And when he's gone, yeah, actually, I got angry because she bit me. They've kind of let that slide a little bit and just been like, okay, on you go. So Rebecca was able to give a very clear description, which was the first time of the actual attacker. And the composite picture was actually pretty spot on in terms of mm-hmm. Gary Ridgway. Uh, so the, the different pictures of the men um, that, that matched the picture were very, you know, they, they matched they had the moustache, had the long scraggly hair, but she did pick Gary Ridgway out. And some detectives from that then had Gary Ridgway clearly as the person they believed to be the Green River Killer. Mm-hmm. They believed that he was the clear person in this case. Um but there was a lack of evidence for them to pursue that any further. So he's gone from C to B to A. Mm. In June of 1985, two bodies are found in Tigard, Oregon. Those bodies belonged to 23-year-old Denise D. Bush and 19-year-old Shirley Mary Sherrill. 
Sadly, a lot is really not known about Denise. She had a long history with sex work and had originally traveled up to Seattle in 1982 with someone labeled as her boyfriend. It is known that she did also experience epileptic seizures. Again, not too much is known about Shirley. She loved to dance and had previously been on a cheerleading team. She began sex work in 1982 and was last seen by a friend with whom she had just had lunch with. 1986, Ted Bundy became fascinated with the case. At the time he was incarcerated in Florida, but contacted Detective Reichardt under the pretense that he would be able to provide information into the inside mind of a serial killer. With few viable leads, Detective Reichardt made the decision to fly to Florida and speak to Bundy. Imagine that cool. Didn't we make an Instagram image for this, one of our very first posts at Could Murder a Pod? And it was like him imposed on Hannibal Lecter within the cell. Is it, I thought it was him as Detective Bundy. I think he had a little pipe. Oh, a little pipe. Like, yeah. But yeah, it, I mean, at this point, it's so investigations into serial killing is such a sort of new phenomena that they are now resorting to this, which, and this part is so fascinating as well. I think this has really inspired a lot of TV shows. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Reichardt, spoke with Ted, Reichardt spoke with Ted Bundy over a series of two days. When discussing his own killings, Bundy would talk in the third person, and it seemed as though he did not make much coherent sense. However, there would be a big breakthrough in the case. Ted Bundy told Detective Reichardt that a serial killer, like the one that we're dealing with, would go back to the scene of the crime. He also added a grim hypothesis, the killer may be performing acts of necrophilia upon the corpses of his victims. 8th of April 1987. Police are able to obtain a search warrant for Gary Ridgway's home, work locker and vehicles. Police hoped that they would be able to find tangible evidence that would be able to link Gary as the killer, as he was last seen with two of the previous victims. However, there was no such luck. The police also obtained a warrant to gather DNA evidence from Ridgeway. As a result, Gary was asked to chew down on a gauze so that the team could obtain his saliva. We must remember at this time that DNA evidence was nowhere near as advanced as it is today. Not sophisticated at all. Therefore, when the results came back to say that Gary's DNA was not a match, there was not a lot more that police could do other than to freeze the samples and hope that the killer would one day be caught. June 29th, 1987, the body of Cindy Ann Smith is found. She was 17 years old at the time of her death. She disappeared over three years prior to the discovery of her body. Her mother recalled her last interaction with Cindy, saying, We picked her up at the airport and we had the most wonderful time that night. My daughter was engaged. She showed me her ring. In the morning, she wanted to go see her brother, who lived next door. We both lived in the SeaTac area. She went out the door. She didn't even have a chance to unpack her suitcase. 1988, Gary Ridgway marries Judith Mawson. So um, in one of his later interviews, when he described his proudest moment and proudest moment in his life, oh, I thought he was going to say about being, you know, evading police, his numerous kills, his kill count, because he's so conceited in that sense but he would actually go and say that um, meeting judith and marrying judith was the proudest moment in his life judith has since described their marriage as perfect she claims that gary treated their marriage like it was their honeymoon every day and she had no idea that he was a cold-blooded killer so both of them were part of this group which was basically single parents so um, people um they were meeting network with people who also were single parents and it's a bit of a kind of support group for people in that instance. And they immediately kind of caught Jeff's eye. And due to his manners, um, Judith fell for him. And they would start dating. And, you know, things progressed quite quickly. July 1991, with significant cuts to the budget and the staff, the task force is on the sole dependency of one man, Tom Jensen. The case is still cold. And although hope is not lost, it appears as though the Green River Killer may never be found. Team members that had been cut from the case were infuriated by the cuts and found the media scrutiny of the handling of the case immensely difficult to deal with. 
yeah, as we mentioned before, uh, a lot of the media and a lot of um, women's groups as well would say that the the victims weren't being taken seriously enough, and there wasn't enough effort uh, put into the case as the victims were, in their eyes, just, just sex workers. Yeah, and I think as well to cut this task force. Obviously, they've got budgets to meet. I think to cut that down to just one individual, one key leading individual, is absolutely absurd, given the volume of deaths that were occurring. Do you see as well in the footage of people searching for them? The people looking for grounds and looking for bodies were wearing green jackets with the, you know, with the actual name, the Green River Killer like Task Force. It's, yeah. it's very, very odd in terms of uh, just cut, cut the really merch budget. Adding, yeah, <laughs> cut the task force budget. Yeah, but yeah, it's a it's a tricky situation. 4th of November 1997. This year, Detective Dave Reichart becomes Sheriff Dave Reichart. And as a result, he is allowed to push funding back into the Green River Killer Task Force. He immediately collects a team of detectives. In March of 2001, so at this point, the search has been going on for almost 20 years, and uh, obviously technology has advanced over this time, but they still have their A, B and C list of suspects. By this time, over a decade has passed since Gary provided DNA samples to the police. And during this time, DNA testing had significantly improved. Detective Tom Jensen is encouraged to retest Gary Ridgway's samples that were collected back in 1987. So yeah, almost 20 years have passed since the first murder um, and they're now retesting this sample. Tom Jensen decides to resend the samples for testing. And as well as this, the fingernails of the victims are rinsed for new evidence. As a result of redoing this thorough search, new sperm cells were found on the pubic hairs of one of the victims. This sample, as well as the two previous sperm samples, confirmed that Gary Ridgway was a match on the 4th of September. 30th of November 2001. It is made public knowledge that Gary Ridgway has been arrested as the killer of the first four victims of the Green River Killer. He is arrested for the murders of Marsha Chapman, Opal Mills, Cynthia Hines and Carol Ann Christensen due to the three DNA matches and one other match on circumstantial evidence. He denies any involvement with the crimes. 27th of March 2003, although he still denies his killings, Gary is charged with the first degree murders of Wendell Lee Caulfield, Deborah Esters and Deborah Bonner. June 13th, 2003. Gary confesses his crime to the police. However, instead of giving him the death penalty, he strikes a plea deal with the police. This plea deal agrees that Gary will plead guilty to all counts of murder in exchange for more information about the deaths of some of his victims. Although this deal was controversial, Dave Reichardt felt that for the families affected, some closure would be best. Therefore, the plea deal is agreed upon. Gary takes investigators to the scenes of his crimes. He tells police that he thinks that he has killed over 60 women. Gary told police, I killed so many women, I have a hard time keeping them straight. Gary confesses to the murder of 48 women. He tells the police that he would invite the women into his home and would show them his son's bedroom. This would make the women feel at ease. Then he would ask women to use the bathroom before sex, so that when they eventually died, they did not make a mess on the bed. They would then engage in intercourse and he would then make them look up. This is when he would grab their throats and strangle them. Gary would then take off the women's clothes and all her jewellery. He would wrap her in a sheet and then take her to his front door. His car would be next to the door and he would drag the body into his trunk and dispose of it, all within 30 minutes of killing them. If they had scratched him, he would cut their fingernails before burying them. He also told investigators that during his questioning by police about the disappearance of Marie Malvar, he hid his arm. At the time, his arm showed a series of scratch wounds that Marie had left the killer with. Being shaken by this questioning by the police, Gary burned his arm with battery acid in an attempt to protect his freedom. This is the thing I don't get as well. So he's got, he, he's not an intelligent guy, 
but he's managed to evade police for all this time. He's also got quite good DNA knowledge, like to That's cut the their fingernails, else, yeah. to make them wash. Um, this, I mean, the battery acid follow-up is a bit... Uh, but where has he got that from? I'm thinking, did he learn this in the Navy? Did he learn this in any of his jobs? Or has he just learned it? Yeah. I mean, I know there were a lot of other serial killers in the 70s and 80s, but DNA had advanced so much over that time. He seemed to be slightly ahead of the curve, which is weird for such a, a low intelligence individual. Gary was asked why he decided to kill sex workers. He said they were easy to pick up without being noticed. I knew they would not be reported missing right away and might never be reported missing. I picked prostitutes because I thought I could kill as many of them as I wanted without getting caught. And on the 5th of November 2003, finally accepting his fate, Gary Ridgway confesses to the murders of 48 women. So that was the timeline of the Green River Killer. We're now going to go into a bit of aftermath. On the 18th of December 2003, Gary Ridgway is convicted for the murders of 48 women. He is sentenced to serve 48 consecutive life terms, one term for each of the women he has killed, and he is denied the possibility of parole. Gary Ridgway is currently being held at Washington State Penitentiary, and in February of 2015 it became public knowledge that he was being transferred to another prison in Colorado. Hearing this news, family members were outraged. With so much public disgrace in the autumn of 2016, Gary was transferred back to solitary confinement at Washington State Penitentiary. And kind of we've, we've kind of glossed over the trial here a little bit, but what really stood out to me in the research for this case is the trial and the uh, surviving relative testimonies um, and witness testimonies. There's, uh, there's so many of them, so we'll, we'll play some of them for you now because they are quite moving. You had said your memory when it comes to all of the women you took was gone. Our memory is not. In your words, you said that they didn't mean anything to you, but she meant everything to us. She was a mother, she was a wife, she was a sister, and we miss her. He's an animal. I wish for him to have a long, suffering, cruel death. He's gonna go to hell and that's where he belongs. Mr. Ridgway, um, there are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. You've, you've made it difficult to live up to what I believe, and that is what God says to do, and that's to forgive. You are forgiven, sir. Yeah, the daughter of one of the victims was particularly striking, and the man that forgives him. And you see yeah. Gary Ridgway is really affected by it as well. I mean, you often... You picture him as a steely cold man but he, you can see him noticeably crying and being upset by his actions but yeah i mean also the this the scenes where he's he's going with the police to help find the bodies of the people he's, he's killed yeah. the things he's openly saying to them openly admitting to go back to the bodies revisit them and have sex with the bodies he'll do that a number of times and then just he'll be quite flippant with his remarks saying yeah but yeah. when the maggots would come i'd you know then i'll stop going back just yeah. so just talking so matter of fact yeah. And like that, one of the one of the detectives said it. You know, she kind of because it was so normal, and he, yeah. he, he's like she was, she found it like she she was nearly going to oh good morning Gary, but then she realised that you know in an instant he would easily kill her and then have sex with her dead body. It's literally yeah. what she said, just showing like how you know he didn't seem that way at all, even after she yeah. knew all these things he'd done. 
there was there was one father not the father that forgave him but another father that did a uh, was a, a, enabled to give a, uh, a testimony uh, and he said I can only hope that someday someone gets the opportunity to choke you unconscious 48 times so you can live through the horrors that you have put our daughters, our sisters and our mothers through. Yeah, some of these impact statements and I think the judge gave all of the family members a chance to speak and address. Yeah. To speak to and address Gary Ridgway, which most of them did, but it's... Yeah, it's absolutely horrific. And um, he, like you said, he's... if you just saw the, if you just go off the photos of him and how he appears in these interrogation videos and the interviews, he's very like a shadow of this monster that that he actually was, and that's that's quite a scary thought. He looks like he yeah, tax fraud. If I saw him, what's he done? Tax fraud. I wouldn't be like yeah. murder, and especially not murder to this extent. It's absolutely absolutely baffling. Um, since his arrest, people have hypothesized on what could have made Gary Ridgway kill so many women. A popular theory is that he was reminded of his own mother and he described the women as having control over him and he disliked this. Ex-girlfriends have since talked about their relationship with Gary and have all agreed he had an obsession with sex. We now know that Gary would also take some girlfriends to have sex with him in the same places that he had killed. Which is just a disgusting thought. I mean, he... It's, it, the, it's absolutely haunting, the, the interviews and with him and him talking about what he's done and why he did it and as I said he's very kind of I wanted to get the biggest number I wanted to be the best serial killer it's absolutely just so it's so bizarre how he's talking and even the things where him showing you know having his son there or showing his son bedroom yeah. it's very Ed Kemper with the glasses being yeah. less threatening he's it, it, so thought out for someone you wouldn't think it would have that kind of in him to be able to process that and think of all those little details he also he in his efforts to kind of uh give well give false tips to the police or try and throw them off the scent slightly we mentioned right at the start of this episode the name call me fred um well that was a a name that he would use to sign off letters uh sent to the police uh, uh claiming to have been the green river killer under the name call me fred and he would give them false details in these letters but they're quite chilling um letters you can find them online and uh, give them a read through but yeah he signed off with call me fred and uh, at a time he was known as the call me fred killer um so another thing that's quite frightening about his uh, number of victims and the number of additional victims he claims to have killed is that there is a possibility that they will still find remains of additional victims on the 21st of december 2010 rebecca becky moreno's uh, remains were found roughly three miles away from mountain view cemetery and a couple of months later on the 7th of february 2011 gary ridgeway pled guilty to the murder of rebecca moreno rebecca's body was finally laid to rest her sister commented finally my sister's not out in the rain and the snow she's somewhere warm now and that's the thing. I mean, he claims, what was it, up to about, he, he believes, and this is kind of his claims have come out since uh, the conviction of Samuel Little with 61 victims, but he claims to have uh, killed more than 90 people, which yeah. I don't know. He hadn't pled guilty to uh, Rebecca Moreno's one at the time. So it, it does lend to suggest that maybe there are more out there, but at the same time, he he comes across as very grandiose in the way that he likes to big up you know his numbers so well i think he's a bit isis in terms that he would claim them anyway to get his number up wouldn't he Uh, matthew ridgeway was enlightened about his father's history when he was a 26 year old marine he was as surprised as anyone else when the news was spread he could not remember a time when his father had lashed out against any women he couldn't think of anything in his past to make his father even appear as possibly a suspect for this crime we do now know that gary would use his son to give the persona of a family man often this comforted the women 
He did also have sex and kill whilst his child was asleep in the car, only a few feet away from him. It has been reported that he now lives in the San Diego area. Understandably, he lives away from the public eye. So, Judith Mawson, uh, Ridgway's third wife, the couple actually ended up divorcing in 2002, uh, not long after Ridgway had been convicted. Uh, and that's when Ridgway said on her, that's when her world completely flipped upside down. So since the divorce and since Ridgway's conviction, Judith Mawson has commented that she is, quote, comfortable with her life. She has refound love and enjoys spending her time gardening. She also finds great joy and comfort in her pet chihuahua precious princess. Judith has admitted that although she sometimes is troubled by her past relationship, she continues to live her life. She feels as though sharing her story will also help her find peace. We may never know how many women Gary Ridgway killed. However, the search does not stop and the police still wish to give as much closure to families as possible. With new advancements in DNA testings, more bodies are still being identified. The latest body to be identified belonged to Wendy Stevens. Before her identity confirmation in 2021, she had been referred to as Bones 10. There are still two unidentified bodies, but the search for the identities will still continue. And that is the case of Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. Yeah, a uh, uh, horrific, horrific case. And there's so much to it in terms of his early life and his upbringing, but then his the fact that he could lead that double life as an adult and uh, still have that kind of outward image of a perfect husband, father, um, member of his church, to then be able to... Trucker. Trucker, truck, yeah, truck, truck painter. painter yeah, yeah, painting the trucks. Yeah. Um, to then be able to claim that many victims, that consistently, in that same patch of area as well. He's mm. not going across the country. He's going up that same large stretch alongside the Green River. And he's almost taunting police and trying to give them false tips along the way. And for such a little unassuming man strangling someone is not easy so for him to have strangled 48 people horrific absolutely horrific case i all this talk about rivers um i've got some tommy's trivia down play the jingle tommy's trivia <laughs> that's terrific welcome back dan by the way love the jingle great work there um i was thinking oh, trivia about rivers and i kind of thought not much to go on there. I, mean, I do remember Ben once doing some swampy facts about, or quiz about swamps. And it, Good quiz. I've still got it if people want it. Nah, I just think it ran quite dry. Um, the, the, Unlike the river. <laughs> yeah. You exactly. could call this Terriveria. No. I could, but I'm not gonna. Uh, but yeah, so I basically was like, okay, I was thinking uh, river, green river, maybe some, f some fish, some fish facts. And I was like, you know what? As I said earlier on, I could imagine swampy being part of this green river. And then I was thinking, Ben, rivers... And then I came to poo sticks. Again, a lot of out of context stuff if you've never listened to the podcast before. But Basically, there's a chat before about poo sticks. Ben didn't know what poo sticks was. I said, what do you think poo sticks are? He said, if you put a, you poo in a river and you get a fork and you mash it up. Um, and for people who don't know what poo sticks are, it's essentially the, I'm not going to call it a sport because it's not a sport. You drop a stick into a river and essentially you race the sticks down the river, commonly uh, seen and winning the poo, hence the name poo sticks. Um, or you can do the grubby version that Ben likes. But anyway, I found that there's a World Poo Sticks Championships. Wow. Which I thought sounds incredibly exciting. I thought Ben might be something you'd be quite keen to go to. Um, this, No? I don't know how welcoming they would be of me once I drop my trousers and yeah, that's true, yeah. drop a poo. It's the smell of So the sport and event was started at Little Whittenham Bridge in 1984 
by the lock keeper, which sounds quite mysterious, Lynn David, as a fundraising event for the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, or the RNLI, I like to call it. So basically, uh, Lynn noticed that people would occasionally snap um, sticks from local hedges and play play the game with themselves. So he thought, how can I make this into money for a charity, luckily? And he basically, um, he started to put out um, a box of sticks and a collection box, buy it. So he basically go, look, here's some great sticks, put some money in the box, a bit of an honesty box, Money in the honesty box, take a stick and have a game. And eventually, it got so popular, they thought, we can turn this into a bloody championship, guys. Uh, so the finish line was set up further downstream, and the winner was the first one to pass it. Um, 20 years after this first edition, the event has just grown and grown in popularity, guys. I mean, I can mm. see by your faces. You, the, the, the listeners can't see it. They are bloody on the edge of their seats. It's attracted visitors from all across the globe. And it's also been broadcast on television in countries including Russia, Japan and the Czech Republic. Basically, it was um, looked at as a very kind of quirky British event. And then the, the which uh, I guess it's kind of like the cheese rolling, uh, chasing the cheese uh, wheels down the hill. Yeah. But probably a bit more innocent, a bit in less broken uh, limbs and bones. So, um, so throughout its existence, guys, how much do you think it's raised in, let's say in 40 years, how much do you think it's raised? Half a mil. 30 grand. Um, but I'm sure, I'm sure they're happy oh, for it. Would you have guessed that? Were you going higher, Dan, or lower? <laughs> I was going quarter of a okay, mil. Wow. Yeah, maybe uh, you guys know a better place to play than these guys. Basically, they had to move the location of this event, this annual event, because of it said it wasn't it wasn't the best area. But the um, president was really saying, you know, I know people are getting older and too old, and the people who were running the event were getting older. But like, look, we need to carry this on because it's so quirky, and <laughs> they want the audience, the the national audience, to um, always you know associate England with this with this sport. They want to say. I actually tried proper poo sticks, and my stick went against the current, went backwards. Oh, probably hit an Eddie boy. Yeah, what's that? An eddy is uh, where the water moves in a circular direction. Circular. So maybe it caught the end of an eddy and went the end other way. An eddy, yeah. Well, there you go. Well, yeah, that's Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff, yeah. I mean, again, probably, uh, I think I could do better. I've noticed how hard it is to find interesting uh, facts and trivia. Thanks, um, man. Do I have to choose a winner? Um, <laughs> <laughs> if I had to choose... Um, to be honest, Ben, I've forgotten your interesting fine, facts, mate. so... Because of that, I'm going to go with Tom. Well, it's, it's just pissing in the bed. Pissing and poo this week. Um, yeah. Poo sticks and pissing. Piss and poo. Um, ben, you're number two. Uh, and also, uh, we have had some comments from people saying, even though we're doing audio, we, they do want us to continue the lookalikes, which you might go, how the hell are you going to do that? Well, we'll do a post, we'll do a social post um, with this, maybe even on our Instagram stories, Ben, people can have a little vote and pick yeah. who, who they think is the better one. Um, usually they say they say you and they say mine's way off, so but we'll see. So Ben, do you want to start with this week's lookalike? So straight away for me, uh, guys, I've, uh, I've just got the one, and just the more I looked at it, the more I had to pick this man, and that is... David Spade. Yeah, that is good. I just think it's a little bit of everything. That's the eyes. Yeah, excellent. Very good. Um, I know you said to me beforehand uh, we're gonna have the same one. I no. thought we we would have. No, no. the the one that there's loads of it on Reddit, so I can't take the credit for this. But everyone's on Reddit saying if they make a movie, like a, a Hollywood movie, I believe there's already a movie out, then that they want to see Gary Oldman play Ridgeway, which I could see, but I think yeah, Oldman's I think... a bit too charismatic for. A, unassuming yeah. individual yeah, Spade is a good shout yeah, thank you boys good work there yeah. uh, mine is not as convincing I don't know it's Rab himself from Jackass okay there's a little bit I don't know there's something about him that came to mind Rab himself I'll probably find a better picture if I'm going to post it online but um, 
I don't know. I would say more Dave England from Jackass than... Yeah. Well, they will put another one up there for, for people. Yeah, Dan's in now. Yeah. So there you go. Um, so that's a look Uh But guys, like we said, we're still, as well, we're still doing court applications. They don't, they don't have to be applications. They can be just some questions, some spooky stories. Um, we uh, This week, we've got a few messages from people who are actually part of the cult, the, pre- um, the prestige membership on our on the website, who have messaged us with some questions and some uh, comments. So, uh, yeah, it's this week's... Uh, cult of ICMAP. <laughs> yeah, and for those who uh, want to get in touch, we have a WhatsApp number, which is plus 44, because we're a global podcast, 1767-308-990. And feel free to uh, voice note us, text us, message us, picture message us. But don't call it. We cannot stress that don't enough. Don't call, call it. Because Ben will pick up. Hello. It could get quite awkward. Yeah, very quickly. Or he can be quite angry as well. Yeah, get quite flustered, Ben. Mm. Some, yeah, sometimes. Uh, just a nice uh, little text message from Holly first off um, to say, I absolutely love the cult and the community that we formed over a relatively short period of time. Shout out to the Discord fam. Shout nice. out to the Discord fam. Whoop, whoop. Uh, not a spooky story per se, but have you ever been in places where you feel like you're being watched? I lived in a couple of super old houses in the Lake District when I was growing up, and I had to run down the stairs because I felt someone behind me. Or felt super uncomfortable in certain rooms on my own. I felt uncomfortable in certain rooms with yeah other people, but um, in terms of being watched and looked at, I don't think I, I don't think I maybe when you're walking home late at night, I felt mm. a bit uneasy. This links quite nicely, though, doesn't it, to our most recent AI Carumba episode where you you did like mm. kind of a bit about some superstitions that your mother has, and I found that yeah. very interesting. That's better than my trivia, fuck's sake. <laughs> Yeah, so AI Carumba episode two, guys, haunted out now over on icmap.co.uk. AI, AI, Um, Right, and we now have a voice note from Gray himself, who's got a great voice. Isn't he? Yes. Yeah, man. Hey, guys, it's Gray. Um, I went scrumping recently. <laughs> uh, got loads of apples. Too many, probably. It's, uh, it's probably ideal for a crumble or a pie, maybe. Um, so what I wanted to do was request any interesting facts about scrumping. Um, is it still illegal? Is it harmless fruity fun or Grand Theft Apple? Um, want to <laughs> know all the details, perhaps even what was the biggest punishment that was ever served for this? Anyway, keep doing what you're doing. Thanks very much. Cool. Blimey, what a question about apples. Um, yeah, I didn't know it was illegal. Well, I've had a little look online, and and scrumping is very much illegal, Gray. It's a euphemism for theft. It's uh, It happens on private property, so you can't do that. Uh, but in contrast, foraging is absolutely fine. So have you actually brewed any, Gray? Because if you have, let's let's get together. Or brewed any crumble. Mm. <laughs> you brewed any crumble, Gray? Scrumping, I love that word. Again, I'm straight on the uh, on the records here, but there's actually a record label <laughs> called Urban Scrumping Records, and it's a record label based in Bristol that specialises in dubstep and breaks. You said that as a man that's never listened to dubstep in your life. Thanks, I'm happy. I'm dubstep, fine with that. Dubstep. Uh, and apparently, it uh, employs 21 to 50 people and has an annual turnover of one to five million dollars. That's too vague. It's vague, isn't it? Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Gray. Um, I, I would love to one day have. Have a slice of crumble. Anyway, next uh, next one, please, Dan. 
Just Dan, Dan. Uh, and finally, we have a voice note from Emily. Hey, Emily. Years ago, um, around about the time when I was just born, my mum used to be friends with someone called Angela Jenkinson. And um, there was a group of them, and they went to see a clairvoyant, because back in the 90s, it were very popular to see a, a clairvoyant, you know, just like make a night out of it. And um, apparently this, this clairvoyant was supposedly pretty good, but when she saw Angela, she completely started to freak out and she went pale and she said she couldn't give her a proper reading. Um, mm. And Angela complained and said, oh, this reading of crap, she couldn't tell me anything. Apparently An- Angela was pregnant at the time and she said she couldn't tell her anything about the, the, the baby. Um, and then the weekend after they went to the clairvoyant, the Angela was found murdered. Mm. Um, and obviously oh. the baby died. Um, and it was, uh, she had a, a lover who was married. Um, yeah, so Angela Jenkinson Bradford, just Google it. It's, in, it's pretty horrible story, but that one oh. about the, the, the thing about the clairvoyant just sort of freaks me out a bit. Oh, wow. I'm a bit iffy about psychics and clairvoyance, but that's always sort of stuck with me. So yeah, a bit weird. Yeah. Wow. That's a bit weird. Yeah. I was at first clairvoyant. Um, I was like, mm, and then yeah, that ended. That twist at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Emily. Uh, yeah. Spooky little way to end, to end the pub. We had scrumping. We had a. Uh, we had people watching you, and we had a clairvoyant who uh, was able to avoid and quite successfully I guess um, but yeah I guess Chef was that story so that about wraps up episode 2 of series 8 thank you guys so so much for all of the lovely feedback and comments and supporting us if you're, if you're new to the channel why not subscribe why not click like why not leave us a lovely rating or review and if you want to keep up to date with everything that we're doing keep yourself well in the loop why not follow us on the socials we've got Instagram Twitter Facebook at CouldMurderAPod uh, come and have a look at our lookalikes they'll be in our story and uh, give us a follow because you'll see which episodes are coming up yes indeed and we'll be back again with uh, a case i'm excited to cover it's one that we've mentioned a few times during um our time over here and uh, yeah it's one again very quite a divisive one i've got quite strong opinions on it so i'm gonna be interested to discuss that with you boys and then see what you guys reckon as well and we'd love to hear what you guys think of the case as well but we'll be back again with that next week and until then like we always say we say this all the time keep doing what you're doing oh unless it's Hmm. Smelling men's Yeah, that was that was smelling men's groins and telling your son that you're washing, fondling with uh, the story. Oh. Yeah, on that note. Shutting cats in fridges and freezers. Yeah, don't... I mean that goes without saying hopefully. Oh, well, um some people. Okay. <laughs> you need to know. <laughs> Alright guys. Uh till bit until next time. See ya. See ya. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.